morning again. What a special morning it is. And for a special morning, I wanted to preach a special message. So this morning, I'm going to actually be looking at the grace of adoption. If you're making notes, I call this message the greatest still of adoption. And turn in your Bibles, if you have, into Galatians chapter 4. If you have a lot of don't panic, it'll come up on the screen anyway to so see if you do have it. There's something unique, I think, about having a Bible in your hands. And I'm even not your phone. You know why? Because phones have Facebook on I know how this works. Bring your Bibles to church. Get around the Word of God. Undistracted. Be addressed by God. And this is what the Lord tells us in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. Crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Lord, what a special day it is when we gather with the people of God to sing your praises, to enjoy children dedications together. And now to gather around your word where you yourself address us. Oh Lord, as we are addressed by you this morning through your word, would you open our eyes and would you reveal to us the glories of what you are seeking to tell us but our lives never be the same as yourself. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Russell Moore is the Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And the following is his very moving story of adopting two boys from a Russian orphanage. Read as follows. When Maria and I first walked into the orphanage, we were led to the boys. We were led to the boys the Russian court had picked for us to adopt. Yet we almost vomited as we walked in. We almost vomited in reaction to the stench and squalor of the place. The boys were in cribs in the dark, lying in their own place. Leaving them at the end of the day was painful, but leaving them the final day before going home and waiting for the paperwork to go through was the hardest thing either of us had ever done. Walking out of the room to prepare for the plain white home, Maria and I could hear Maxim calling out for us and falling down in his crib, convulsing in tears. Maria shook with tears too. And so I turned around to walk back into the room just for a minute. I placed my hand on both their heads and said, knowing, even though knowing that they couldn't understand a word of my English, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I don't think I consciously attended to cite Jesus' words to his disciples in John 14, 18. 
adjusting what the only thing was saying at the time. When Maria and I at long last received a call to say that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. My mother-in-law gathered some wildflowers growing between cracks in the pavement outside the orphanage. And we nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel <coughs> and walked out into the sunlight. All to the terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun before. They had never felt the wind. They had never heard the sound of a car door slamming or had the sensation of being carried along at 100 miles an hour down a Russian road. I noticed that they were shaking and reaching back for the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, now Timothy, Sergei, that place is a pit. If only you knew what is waiting for you. A home with a mum and dad that love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates and McDonald's Happy Meals. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalor. But they had no other reference point than to them who was home. We knew the boys had acclimated to our home that they trusted us when they stopped hiding food in their hijacks. They knew there would be another meal coming and they wouldn't have to fight for the scraps. This was the new normal. They had now thoroughly Americanized, perhaps too much so, able to recognize the sound of a microwave ding from 40 yards away. But I still remember those little hands reaching for the orphanage. And I often see myself there all over again. You know, I have had the privilege now of being a pastor for nearly 23 years of my life. And as I think back over that time, my mind is filled with glorious moments of just enjoying the local church with great joy. Moments where you walk through difficult things with people, but it is an honor to do so. Moments where you get to dedicate babies like we did today, or stand with people when they're getting married, or just be around them when you're seeing God is at work in their lives. And yet there are three more, three few moments that have provided me with more joy than when an adoption takes place in church life, and you get to meet that child for the first time. Each moment when that has occurred in my life, I have felt the pleasure of God in these parents. I felt the pleasure in God for their courage and their unselfishness and their big-heartedness to seek to care for children who were never their own. Each time I'm reminded, likewise, of the way the Lord in His grace has adopted sinners like you and me. And each time I'm reminded of the profound love of the Father to people like you and me. And so I wasn't surprised when I was informed of the following words at the start of chapter 19 in J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God. He says, well, what is a Christian? The question can be answered in many different ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one that has God as Father. For our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. But the truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. 
My friends, I simply cannot improve upon that. For the truth of our adoption gives us the deepest insights that the New Testament affords into the greatness of God's love. And so here's my hope this morning. It's my hope this morning that as we give ourselves to examining the glories of adoption as seen in God's Word, that for each and every one of us in the room today, we will be freshly aware of God's personal, passionate, and particular love for you. Personally. You see, I still meet all too many Christians, many that have known Jesus for many years, and yet they still sense a lot certain or maybe suspicious of how maybe the world feels about them. All too many people feel that maybe God is just tolerating them or putting up with them. I believe the Lord wants to show you that that's not true this morning. And that He passionately, personally, particularly, loves you individually. And if you're here today and you don't know God as Father, I believe He wants to open your eyes this morning to just how He feels about you. What he's done for you. And what that all means. See, as we come into this chapter this morning, Galatians chapter 4, it's very much like arriving at a party halfway through. Have you ever done that? I know I have. You rock up, you're a bit late, you're in sort of group, you've already served before me, you sort of stand and think it. And you have to try and work out what's already been said because they've been chatting about something. And that's what it's like when you examine Galatians chapter 4 because they have been chatting about something. We are coming in halfway through. So what is going on here? What is the conversation that is going on here in this letter to the Galatians? To the Galatian church have been planted by the Apostle Paul, the author of this text, and they are going through a serious crisis. Since Paul left, false teachers have started coming into this church. They have convinced this local church of a false gospel, namely a gospel of works. False teachers have come and said, Jesus was great, but he's not enough. You need to do all these different things to truly be saved. And the Apostle Paul then writes to them in the start of chapter 3. He says, well, who has bewitched you? He's basically saying, this is not what I taught you. They are teaching you a false gospel. He wants them to know that the foolishness and heresy of this gospel they are listening to. And he wants to remind them, your salvation... It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You are saved by His grace, not by what you do. And as we enter into this conversation, He's still talking to them about that here in Galatians chapter 4. And in particular, He's talking to them about their old beliefs and their old way of life, who they used to be. In chapter 4, verse 3, He said that the same way we also... When we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He's trying to remind this congregation, listen, if you were a Jew before, then prior to salvation in Christ, you were enslaved to the law. You used to read the Old Testament law, thinking, I've got to do it all, I've got to do it all, I've got to do it all, and that's what I'm going to write God. You were enslaved to it in the way you lived. And if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile, and you were enslaved to things too. You were enslaved to the idols of your heart. You are enslaved to yourself. Things that you thought, maybe one day will make me right with God, and if I'm not interested in God, then maybe just things that I'll enjoy for myself. Because my world's going to revolve around it. He's saying up front, everybody was enslaved to something at some point in their life. 
But then in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, he explains what God did then. What he did when that was our reality. And it's right here that we see the glories of God's personal and passionate and particular love for us as displayed through the doctrine of adoption. I have two points there this morning, two areas that I want us to see God's love for us in, in this text. Here's the first. And when we see God's love for us in the means of our adoption and how it actually took place. See, the provision of a Savior for those who are enslaved under the law, for those who are enslaved by their sin, is wonderfully revealed to us in verse 4. See, Jim Haney, the founder of Sovereign Grace Churches globally, he says this about verse 4. He says, It is in these words that we encounter the turning point and the most important point in redemptive history. For apart from the words we read in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and the saving events that these words describe, we would have no hope of reconciliation with God. But in these words, and from these words, we discover that God has graciously intervened to address our sinful condition of life and provided for us the Savior that we so desperately need. Amen to that. When we were enslaved to our sin, when we were enslaved to the law, thinking, if I can just obey this stuff, I'll get right with God, then discovering we're never going to be able to do enough, we then read in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. My friends, behold the love of God for you. When the fullness of time had come, He sent His Son to you. You see, we were all designed, everyone in the room, we were all designed by God to have a relationship with God the Father. We were designed for a family relationship. We were designed to have a relationship with God the Father, where we would be His children, and He would be our Father, and we would dwell together and enjoy one another. That's where we find our identity and our joy and our peace, because He made us. And He designed us for that type of relationship. And yet the Bible makes clear that all like sheep we have gone astray, each one of us, to his own way. We don't fancy that relationship. But we do fancy what the Father has made. So we look around the world and we give ourselves to those things. We, we don't really want to be you know, held back by that relationship. So we just do our thing. And that's what sin is all about. Because our Father in heaven is also a Father of justice and holiness and righteousness. He can't go with that. Because of our sin, we're actually cut off from the Lord. But then notice what he actually did for us. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Listen, God sent forth his Son. From heaven to earth, from the manger to the cross, God sent forth his Son. Why? Why did he send his Son on the greatest rescue mission ever told, even though it would mean dying at Calvary in our place with the Father turning his face to him. Why did he do it? Well, because of his passionate and personal and particular love for you. Great 19th century preacher C.H. Spurgeon says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. 
Do we move not towards the Lord, but the Lord toward us? I do not find that the world in repentance sought after its maker, no. But the offended God himself, in infinite compassion, broke the silence and came forth to bless his enemies. Isn't that wonderful? We see the love of God for us in the means of our adoption, and in the reality that at just the right time, God sent forth his son. It's now, for those of you that don't know me, where I work very well, I have five children in my home, and they all bring me great joy. And this week was a reminder of that reality when I, we got to go as a family and enjoy seeing our Lydia and play Maria in the sound of music. And it was a beautiful uh, time. And it was, I was having many proud dad moments. When on Thursday night, when on Saturday night, there was dust in the air, something was happening. But there were numerous times I could have seen and enjoyed the production that was going around and everything in me just going, Hey! That's my daughter! <laughs> send his son forth to do a musical to entertain him. He didn't send forth his son to do a project for him. He sent forth his son to give his life away as a ransom for you. And his son gladly stayed on the cross. And his father turned his face away from his son on the cross. Why? Because of his personal and passionate and particular love for you. What a staggering reality. It is hard to get our head around. No one on the stage today dedicating their children would instinctively think, I will give this child away to die for others. And that's exactly what God did for you. 
And the son can't be king because he feels the same. We see the love of God for us in the means of our adoption. And if the sentence ended there in verse 4, then we would already be fueled for a lifetime of praise, would we not? If you just said full stop right there and we're done, you bring the band back, let's go, I'm happy. But the sentence does not stop there. Read on. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that. This is so that. There's a, there's a purpose in this. So that we might receive adoption as if verse 4 ended with those opening remarks the content of the verse would have derived praise for our entire life and yet as you read on you realize God sent forth his son not just for the redeeming purpose to make us right with God he sent forth his son also for a adopting purpose God's purpose did not conclude with redemption, it culminated in adoption. In love, he made his enemies into sons through the sending of his only begotten son. You see, in the doctrine of justification, which is what it means to be right with God, that, that doctrine should amaze us. It should amaze us that we can be right with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And yet, the doctrine of adoption should overwhelm us. Because it's in the doctrine of adoption where we feel and experience the profound love of God as he adopts us and pulls us into his family. J.R. Packer writes this way about it. He says, Justification, by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past, together with his acceptance of us in the future, is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel. And that is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless and miserable. And in our lucid moments, afraid, we have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a sort of relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this is what the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Listen, closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. Isn't beautiful? How do you think God feels about you? How do you examine his love? Listen, it should be defined by closeness and affection and generosity. That's the way it works. He continues to be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is great stuff. It's so true. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, is it not? To know that you're forgiven of your sin and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. To know that you are right with God is a great thing. But to know that you are loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. 
So there's a great and a greater still? Oh yes, there is. There is a great and greater still. You're not only justified, it culminates in adoption where he cares for you with closeness and affection and generosity. And so herein Dr. Packer got it right. For it is here in adoption that we encounter the deepest insights into the greatness of God's love. It's only also, famously, then we see God's love for us in the means of our adoption through the sending of His Son. That's not all. Number two, we see God's love for us in the experience of our adoption. In its experience. Look with me at verse 6. He writes, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Once again, then we see the initiative of God towards us, revealing the love of God towards us. In verses 4 and 5, we see our position as sons and daughters being secured by God through His initiative, His sending forth of His Son. And then in verses 6 and 7, we see the experience of that adoption is also the result of God's initiative. Namely, the sending of the Holy Spirit into your life upon conversion with a cry of, Have a Father. There is one who comes to live in you when you become a Christian who enables you to experience what it is to be a son and daughter of God. And once again, you realize it is his initiative. He has sent his son. He has sent his spirit. It's all his initiative. And yet the Apostle Paul wants us to see something more than just God's initiative. He wants us to see the cry. The cry that comes to the What is this? Well, it is the cry of the converted. It is the cry that comes from all those who generally know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is a cry that comes with the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it is a cry that comes from all those who have been generally adopted as sons. That cry exists. You have been adopted as a child of God, and although unexpected place to find assurance, it is profound assurance and profound evidence of His personal and passionate and particular love for you. Because it's there. as an expression of your conversion. C.A. Spurgeon explains it better than I can. This is what he says. I once knew a good woman, a good woman who was the subject of many doubts, and when I got to the bottom of her doubts, it came down to this. She knew that she loved Christ, but she was afraid that he did not love her. Yet that is a doubt that should never trouble me. Never, not by any possibility. Because I am sure of this, that the heart is so corrupt naturally that love for God never did get there without God putting it. I see you may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit and not a root. It is the fruit of God's love to you and did not get there by the force of any goodness in you. I see you may conclude with absolute certainty then <laughs> that God loves you if you love God. Isn't that brilliant? You can conclude with actually certainty. If you have a love, a genuine love for God in your heart, 
That is an expression because He loves you. If you have a love for God in your heart, if there is a spirit within Christ, Abba, Father, I love you. I genuinely have great affection for you. That is a sign of your conversion. It didn't get there by itself. You're not that good. I know many of you. And neither am I. It did not happen by itself. You know what did happen? It happened because God sent forth His Son, and then He sent forth His Spirit that now cries within you, our Father. It is an unexpected place to find the assurance of God's love. But if you have a love for God, He has a love for you. And in His person. And in His particular. And in His passion. And in His evidence. By the Holy Spirit in your heart that is crying, Abba, Unexpected place to find a shirt. But it is right there in verse 6. And then he concludes in verse 7. He says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You know, it's not immediately recognizable that there is something beautiful in him. All the way through the other verses he's been using the plural throughout. Your sons, your daughters, always in the plural, but not in this last verse. He uses the same. It's like it's like as if Paul, just before he concludes, wants to let us know that God is looking at each and every one of us in our eyes personally. Saying, listen, if you have that cry in your heart, then you're a son. And what that means is he has passion and personal, particular love for you. This isn't a vague multitude that he's looking out, wondering who might come. No, this is names. Names. That he wants to ensure we all understand. As a dad, he may have hundreds of thousands of people. But he knows all that is. And they're all that. All that is with his <coughs> Listen, if you're here today, and you're not right now a Christian, you may wonder, where's God at with me? I want to encourage you. God personally and passionately and particularly loves you. You were made for a personal relationship with the Father. You were made for a family relationship. That's where you were meant to find your identity and your joy and your peace. And if you don't have those things, it's because you've never found a relationship that you were actually designed to make. And maybe like me, you've gone looking for it in 101 other different places. None of them will satisfy. It's a wild goose chase. Let me tell you, there's no goose. The Father wants to have a relationship with you. And he saw us have a relationship with you that when the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son. Even though you rejected him and uninterested in him, he came after you. And it was that son that said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. He said, if you want to have a relationship with the Father, you simply need to put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. It's not about doing stuff. That's what the Holy Galatians is about. You can do stuff. It's just not going to help you. The way to get right with God and be forgiven and redeemed and adopted by Him is to say, Lord, I realize I'm inside. 
Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? And I put my faith in you as my Lord and Savior. Where did you take me? You know what he was? As a father of a prodigal son, he comes running towards you. He says, I love you. Of course I love you. If you're here today, maybe you're even thinking, I, I think I'm too far gone. Have you read the Bible? There are plenty of people too far gone. There are plenty of people in the Bible. Prostitutes, adulterers, drunkards, liars, thieves. And they all begin to know God as Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ in their place. It's never too late for you. Do it today. And know what it really means to have a true relationship with the Lord. And if you are here today and you are a Christian, you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I simply want to encourage you. My friends, live in awareness and assurance of this incredible love. Because it is there in the bucket while it's Lord. We see it in the means of our adoption. We see it in what it all means and what he's done for us. And we see it through our experience of our adoption. The great John Owen. One said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe in love of him. My friends, I trust this reminder today from Galatians chapter 4 has once again impressed on our minds. He has a passionate and personal and particular love for you. Enjoy it. Live in it. And may all glory go in. Well, Father, I do thank you again for reminding us of how you feel about us. Lord, it doesn't matter how old we get, we all remember moments when a father or a parent has communicated to us their love for us. Although we thank you that you do it better than anyone. But you're so clear in your communication to us as your children. Lord, I pray that you would love and the good, live in the good of those around. Lord, how can we thank you enough for what it meant to love us? How can we thank you enough for what that actually cost you? And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for having me. In Jesus' precious name.